Welcome to Public Service Podcasting, your inside look into the world of public service scholarship and practice. Welcome to Public Service Podcasting, your source for all things public service, public management, public administration. Um, with me, I've got uh, three excellent uh, people tonight. We've got two co-hosts. We have Ian Elliott and Karen Bottom, and our guest is Joanne Murphy. So I'm just going to get everyone to introduce themselves. Um, Ian, would you like to go first? Hello, yes. Ian Elliott from Northumbria University. And I'm Russ Glennon from Manchester Met University. Karen, um, you've not been on the podcast before, but you are one of our uh, co-hosts. You just couldn't make the last one. Just give us a little bit about yourself, you know, where you've come from, what your research interests are, that sort of thing. Yeah, of course. Thanks, Russ. Uh, so, Karen Bottom, I'm from the Institute of uh, Local Government Studies, or INLEGOV, at the University of Birmingham. And in my capacity in PAC, I'm vice chair for uh, teaching and learning. And I think I've been doing that for almost three years now. Um, so how did I find myself kind of in the current role in public admin? I guess like, uh, like I, I suppose the majority of public admin scholars, it's not been a linear route because we don't tend to do undergraduate degrees in the subject. So originally I was a nurse in a previous life and after doing a number of jobs in that area, I decided that I wanted to learn a little bit more about the kind of the decisions that underpin the public services. So I went off to university with kind of great intentions of understanding the public services, but got caught up in traditional political science and ended up doing a comparative politics PhD at Manchester with David Farrell, who's now at UCD, and, uh, and then ended up working in Inlegov, uh, studying small parties, because at that point in time, my uh, research and love was political parties, and slowly caught the public service, local government, public sector bug, and have um, kind of incrementally over the years kind of moved much more so in that direction. So I guess interdisciplinary in the true sense of the word between politics and public services, public admin, but probably with much more of a focus on the latter now. And so in terms of my interests, well, I've always been particularly interested in how elected officials and paid officials in the public sector learn and develop in their roles. So most of the work and research consultancy teaching I've done in those areas has very much focused on that and the recent work I've done in recent years has focused on how people learn and how people change in their role and at the moment I'm very much looking into how that's the case and I'm particularly looking into what we teach our public sector professionals, what they want to learn, what they should learn, how we teach it, and indeed what we should be teaching and looking at the equivalence of um, public policy, public management, public um, admin programmes kind of across the UK. And you're also, Karen, quite involved in the whole agenda around decolonising the curriculum as well, aren't you? Yes, yeah, so that's something that um, I've been looking at a lot and um, looking into doing more work on uh, in, in an academic sense uh, for um, teaching public administration, looking at developing a special issue 
on decolonizing public administration but in a more practical sense I've been doing quite a lot of work within um, my school of government which is where I'm placed at the University of Birmingham with other colleagues thinking about how we can how we can how we can teach differently and it's particularly important in Inlegov because while we spend a lot of our time teaching public service practitioners who are largely in England we also spend a lot of time teaching practitioners and post undergraduates um, from other parts of the world particularly East Asia and so we really need to think a lot more about how we teach them and contextualize their teaching in ways that they kind of recognize uh, introduce them to scholars that perhaps mean more to them than those that are working in along the Euro-Atlantic corridor that you know quite frankly a lot of public administration public policy programs tend to focus on so in terms of decolonizing what we're talking about there is yeah acknowledging that actually much of what we teach is written by a small number of white men let's be relatively clear um, yeah. and actually accepting that there are lots of other traditions of public administration you know that the, the UK or the European or the Anglo-Saxon is one tradition but you know there is Islamic public administration and Confucian and all other sorts well indeed yes and um, and it's good to bring the full complement to our teaching which we do but I think that it's a, it's an interesting uh, it's an interesting approach that I think we all as a profession need to uh, think about more excellent well thank you very much for that I love your sort of tale of moving slowly gradually ever and ever deeper into mm -hmm. uh, the world of public admin and public management and i think once you've been here long enough we give you a golden clipboard and stuff and then you know you finally you've uh, actually made it well, yeah, um, i always thought i was very different to everybody because going into going <laughs> going to university at the ripe old age of 26 which i thought was ancient back then um but you know i thought i was very different but as you get especially i think especially in the areas that we work in you know everybody I meet has had almost all of always has come from a different discipline or come from a professional part of the public services and then gone into academia so uh, so and I think that's not unique but kind of quite common in um, our area it's a lovely hodgepodge yeah that's one of the things I like yeah. most about it right well um, thank you so much for that and obviously Karen you'll be joining us for um, the remaining the remainder of the um, podcast that we're going to be doing we've got quite a few planned and starting to get lined up um, so I think it's really cool to have the three of us here and I'm, I'm very much looking forward to that as uh, as I know um, Ian is as well um, so let's just move over to our uh, guest Joanne you've been super patient um, we've been kind of chattering away there for a little bit so, um, Dr. Joanne Murphy, um, I, I'm not going to introduce you because I'll let you introduce yourself. But yeah, just tell us a little bit about you, sort of what you do and where you've come from and how you've kind of ended up uh, in the in the places that you have. OK, so look, Russ, thanks very much uh, for inviting me along this evening. It's wonderful to be here and it's incredibly important to be talking about these issues of public administration and public service, particularly at the moment, given the huge challenges that we have had um, in relation to the pandemic and all of the difficulties that we've had this year. Um, I, I was fascinated listening to Karen earlier because I think my journey mirrors hers a little bit, uh, which for me is a bit unusual because I don't often come across that many other political scientists um, being in a, a management school. Um, 
but uh, I started off actually as a political scientist uh, in an area around conflict and division with a particular interest at that time in the Middle East and in what used to be called divided societies. Um, so I did a little bit of work in the Middle East, uh, particularly in the West Bank and Gaza in the Palestinian communities there. And then I kind of decided that I really didn't want to be a Middle East specialist, not least because my Arabic was pretty shocking. Um, and I decided that I, I wanted to do, I wanted to, to, to work within the voluntary sector for a while. So I began to work in a sector in Northern Ireland that Ian will be familiar with, which is generally referred to as community relations work, which is trying to see how, uh, how communities that are pretty much uh, divided and at each other's throats, or certainly were then pre-ceasefire, can begin to work together more constructively. And in doing that, I began for the first time to realise that there is such a thing as organisational change. Uh, because as part of that work, I was very fortunate to start to, to, to be able to engage with organizations um, which were trying to develop structural responses to conflict and to division. Uh, then I went and I, I, did a, I did a master's in organizational change, and then I did my PhD in the School of Business in Trinity College, Dublin. And my PhD, I suppose, was a little bit unusual again in a business school because it really focused on the um, organizational change process, which saw the police in Northern Ireland transform from being an organization which was very heavily Protestant in its makeup to being one which was more, more representative of the community in Northern Ireland. And that was a, an organizational outcome, which was a direct response to the uh, Good Friday Agreement in 1998. So from that, my work has developed, uh, expanded a bit from policing, uh, looking at how organizations in environments of conflict can build peace and how the people in them can contribute to creating uh, change and to dealing with some of these really difficult, wicked problems and grand challenges that we face in society today. So that's kind of where I got to here. I don't know that's if that answers your question. That's, I have so many questions. Uh, uh, that that is, sounds absolutely fascinating. The, the, the first thing that really struck me, Joanne, about your work and, and what you were saying there about working in places like Gaza and obviously throughout Northern Ireland as well is just some of the challenges in, in doing field work in, in some of these areas, in, in conflict zones. How, how have you found that and, and, and how, what have you found to be the main uh, challenges in doing field work in those sort of contexts and have there, have there been any things that have surprised you in a way in doing research in those areas? Well, you know, it's really interesting because I think, you know, you, I mean, you're from Northern Ireland as well, Ian, so you'll mm. understand uh, that like growing up in a divided society and in a society where there is, you know, there's a real history of intercommunal violence. Um, it feels like it has very few advantages, but I think the one thing I find is that whenever you've grown up in that environment, you understand what uh, what um, what division really is, and so when mm. you go into other societies, you recognise it. And I think we also understand what it is like to be a victim, and what it is like to 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 to, to speak to and to have. Um, you know, conversations with perpetrators as well on yeah. all sides because those people are not strangers. They're people we went to school with. They're people who we know to speak to on a daily basis. Um, they're ex-prisoners. They're people who mm. were involved in security forces. You know, they're, they're people who have been involved in sometimes really horrific um, 
processes of engagement. Um, so in a sense, I think that that, that gives you a, a tacit understanding, a tacit knowledge, yeah. which is incredibly valuable. And I think it also makes you you know, really understand the, the, the humanity of this, the inhumanity of it, <laughs> and whenever violence is visited on people, and the fact that that travels through generations, it's not something that people get over. Absolutely, I and I, I love as well, I really love the link then you've made with ideas around organisational change, and I'm wondering to what extent Lewin's work has been, um, you know, particularly uh, meaningful for you in that because of course he was in, he was a, a German immigrant to of the course, US absolutely. and, and, and yeah. you know a lot of his thinking around organizational change was based on not just thinking about organizations but actually thinking about society so yeah. how has his work then influenced you in a way? I think his work has been, you know, for anyone who looks at organisational change, Lewin is really one of those critical people that you, you know, you can't really kind of get past. I think, I think the, the, you know, the one thing I would say is that when you're looking at organisations that have to go through change as a response, to, as a response to big external shifts, like the police in Northern Ireland, for example, you understand that change never really stops because change goes um, backwards as well as forwards and there are always tensions within those organizations in terms of you know moving the process forward or keeping the process positive because not everyone in the organization will always support or be engaged in the change process mm -hmm. and you know i when you look at someone like lewin and you look at his history and you look at his you know a real understanding of system-wide change that he lived not just wrote about it's incredibly significant you know and uh, for you know for you know i believe that that um, creating societal change and creating and peace building which is i suppose my particular interest is an organizational process in the same way that it's a political process and a community process and if you don't get the organizational element right if you don't keep working on it you're endangering all the other aspects of the process so, so you know so writers like lewin and you know and others too have been incredibly influential I think what I really like about that, Joanne, is you're bringing into um, the sort of the, the public admin sphere there, um, as you said, your background from political science, but very much this kind of sense that what um, is important is, is around these interfaces. So, you know, you talk about um, victims and victimhood and how you need to understand the divided community there, but taking an organizational perspective and, and it feels very much that is that is that kind of liminal space something that you really operate in that's important to your work yeah i think and i think that's what it is and i think for most organizations within environments of division they really are inhabiting liminal space you know a lot of the time they're not they're not they're not a conflict but they're not at peace either you know and trying to to manage that and to manage the tensions of that is incredibly difficult and i think for us as researchers as well i mean i feel like i'm i'm always in liminal space because i'm i'm neither in a management space or in a political science space i sort of sit between so you're neither one or the other and that creates its own challenges as I think well a lot of public admin people feel that way don't yeah, they yeah i i think so too yeah mm. and one of the things i loved about about um your your most recent book, Joanne, was this idea of 
peace building as an organizational enterprise which really does kind of span across political science and and business management can you tell us a little bit more about that idea because i was really fascinated by that well i mean thank you so much for that i mean it's it, the book was published um um, about uh, two or three months ago now, uh, it's called Management in War. It was it was published by Paul Grave Macmillan, and the book, you know, you know, books are a bit of an undertaking, but this book was really, in some ways, probably the easiest thing I've ever written, because I've been thinking about it for such a long time, and for me, it just seemed to be something that really needed to be spoken about a bit more. So what the book tries to do is to look at a number of sectors in three different locations. So Northern Ireland, obviously, just because the data for me is pretty readily available, uh, um, the Basque country, uh, the Basque region, uh, and uh, Bosnia, and particularly the area of Bosnia around Sarajevo. And so what I tried to do within those locations was to look at how people managed businesses and built businesses in environments of division, how they managed cultural organizations, how they managed more ordinary public administration uh, in and around issues of conflict and division. And then how they manage things like the legacy of the past, which is really, really difficult. And one of the things that we massively struggle with, I mean, I was, I was so taken earlier by what Karen was saying about decolonizing the curriculum, because this mm. is something that all organizations need to deal with. Um, and it is an organizational endeavor, just as much as it's a political endeavor. In fact, sometimes more so, because organizations tend to last out political administrations. Um, and so what's actually happening within organizations is very often hidden. So the book was an attempt to really begin to think about that, to ask people who are very rarely asked what their role was in terms of um, trying to manage or mitigate uh, environments of conflict. And, and it was a real, a, a genuine privilege to be able to do that research and to be able to write it. Yeah, and, and you mentioned decolonizing the curriculum there. And, and one of the things that... I, I think we have to think about in terms of being a, a UK learner society is 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 the role of, of British public administration not just across the world but actually within the UK itself and obviously yeah. there's a very mixed and complex uh, relationship between British public administration and the British state and Ireland um, yeah. and I guess that features quite predominantly in your work as well. I think it has to. Yeah. I think there's no, yeah. there's no real way of getting away from it. You know, these are enormously difficult, enormously contested issues. It's, it's, you know, it's really hard to think about Northern Ireland as an entity without understanding, you know, the past and and even today. I mean, I don't know if you saw any of the media today, but there's a, there's a campaign that's been launched by the Northern Ireland office to look at um, the centenary of the creation of the Northern mm. Ireland state. Yes, um, and one of the kind of people they they've used in this ad, it seems enormously incongruous, is Seamus Heaney, you mm. know, who's a, obviously a Nobel Prize winning poet from Northern Ireland. But a lot of Seamus Heaney's poetry is quite um, anti-establishment. You know, and yeah. and I think that was I think people saw that and thought, hang on a minute here. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, I, I was I was intrigued by that because I guess at the same yeah. time, if they weren't going to include Seamus Heaney, it would seem like a big omission and a big yeah. you know, people would be saying, How how dare they not include our most famous Nobel laureate in, in, in you know, and they would think that it was kind of shunning uh, dissenting voices. So I don't know, yeah. I mean there seems to be again, you know, different perspectives on that. It is Just a really so interesting one, to... isn't it? 
Yeah, and I'm, I'm sure that they must have had the permission of the family, you know, and, and there must have been some more thinking going on in the background in terms of the decision. But it, the level of social media commentary it has generated today is huge, you know. Absolutely. And of course, one of Shane's yeah. famous poems, you know, talk, talks about, you know, uh, my passport's green, you know, mm. there'll be, you know, there, there, no one's raising a glass to toast the Queen, you know, yeah. and, and that, that in itself is being quoted. So I suppose if more people are reading his Absolutely. poetry they would need to read a bit more than that to get a general view and um, I guess that, that view reflects a lot of people within Northern Ireland as well and that's part of the Northern Irish story yeah it's 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 really fascinating because it is actually you know I, I mean I don't envy the task of the people that were that were in, engaged in that process because it must have been incredibly difficult to find non-contentious <laughs> figures you know yeah. I mean I mean in, you know in all honesty it's I think Seamus Heaney and, and Mary Peters were it looked like it was that was about it <laughs> you know which is, is should should give us pause for thought I think perhaps. <laughs> I think as well there's a long tradition of um, media campaigns in, in the kind of broader sense um, hugely misunderstanding um, the works on which they draw whether that's you know Trump's use of um, of, of uh, born in the USA and you know it just fundamentally not not really getting the two to mash together in a way that kind of makes sense I think that's very interesting yeah, well, um, Eaton Rifles I think kind of you know comes in there wasn't that a big yeah 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 and it's always amusing to see people i think not getting you know it's not that these are like heavily buried subtexts <laughs> i think in many of these yes. things you know you've only got to scratch the surface um i was really interested and this is kind of these weird connection things that kind of come up in what you're talking about the basque country in that um my my first degree was in modern languages which was french and spanish oh. Yeah, and um, I spent oh, I, I spent six months uh, in in France in Po down in Aquitaine, and then mm -hmm. I mm -hmm. spent six months in Oviedo, which is in Asturias, in the kind of northern bit of Spain. But mm -hmm. prior to that, mm -hmm. I'd spent about five months in Mondragon um, or Arrasate, as they would call it. Uh, they being mm -hmm. the Basque, sorry, yeah. um, for their town. Yeah. Um, and uh, Mondragon is is felt to be the town where Etta started or the first people uh, involved in the movement and I, I stayed with a with a Basque family and they spoke Castilian Spanish to me and it you know it was a bit of a revelation to realize that this isn't the language they speak at home <laughs> you know this is the language they hear yeah. on tv yeah but but actually they would only be speaking in basque at home and actually that gave me you know talking to those people and hearing more about you know some of the the terrible atrocities that franco committed against the basques um and you know the gal and state-sponsored terrorism to an extent yeah. now yeah. none of that excuses um or in any way you know celebrates um etta's kind of terrorism but the there are clearly some parallels there around Ireland but what what was it for you in terms of seeing those two situations and trying to drawing out any themes or patterns around them well I think it was it was fascinating because while of course all conflicts are different you know it it reminds you of that thing you know all happy families are happy and all unhappy families are you, you know behave in different ways and and for me there were obvious patterns in terms of dealing with the past issues of legacy real issues of division within families there are huge differences as well of course um in terms of you know that 
that, that these weren't uh, religious, you know, that they weren't they weren't religious denominations as such. So it was more difficult to identify which side, if you want to put it like that, people were going to be on. And so there were very often very specific divisions within families, which is much less common in Northern Ireland. Um, but the I think what really struck me was the longevity of conflict and the fact that you know we forget that Spain were you know which we all love we go on holiday and we think is this wonderfully modern European country has um, the second largest number of undiscovered remains in the world after Cambodia that it was the site of an absolutely vicious civil war and that that war is still being fought in lots of different ways. And so, I mean, I was really, really fortunate to be able to spend some time uh, principally in Bilbao and San Sebastian and to be able to talk to people who had, you know, really engaged at lots of levels in terms of looking at how they could best play their part in moving the, the conflict um, into a more peaceful phase, because we don't really talk about kind of post-conflict stuff anymore. We tend to talk about conflict transformation, sort of moving it from a violent phase to a less violent one and hopefully, you know, maintaining that trajectory. Um, and I mean, I've said this to you before, Russ, but one of the things that really struck me, I was doing a, a witness seminar with a group of uh, administrators in San Sebastian and one uh, woman who was older was there and she spoke about her grandfather who had fought in the Spanish Civil War who had lost brothers um, and who never spoke about the war so you know and that's how they referred to it you know the war and uh, and she said she said he only ever said one thing to me and it was about Franco and she said he said he was short he was from Galicia and he was a bastard. And that was, you know, which is, is just a brilliant line, you know, and I, like you're laughing and I, and I laughed when she said it, but it wasn't said in a humorous way at all. It was, it, she was deadly serious. You know, it's you amazing, know. I think, to to reflect on the fact that that Spain only became a democracy in yeah, 1977. Yeah. You know yeah, that yeah. Uh, that as a dictatorship, I think it's that legacy, as you said, is is um, embedded very deeply um, yeah, in yeah. in culture and society. Um, and yeah, tra managing that is invariably the role of public administration. You know, mm -hmm. so it's 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 public administrators who, when they're when they're um, building uh, uh, water mains, are uncovering the remains of people who were killed. You Gosh. know, so you know it, it's a, it's a real life thing, and that's incredibly difficult. And then deciding what to do and trying to manage that process, and trying to manage how you talk about the past and how you think about what happens and how you're doing it in a way which is inclusive, which brings people in rather than pushes them away, you know, and recognises the absolute brutality of it. You know, I mean, it was a, a you, you're really struck but just by the, the absolute brutality of it when you speak to, to people who have lived through it. And that is something actually which was really, you know, certainly in the interviews I did, which was really common within the business community in particular. You know, you know people had to be extraordinarily brave to manage through that. It's quite extraordinary, really. Uh, do you think, Joanne, were there key kind of lessons or, or things that you took away from your research in, in that context that would apply within Northern Ireland? 
Well, I think, I mean, people tend to sort of look at them the other way around. I think because Northern Ireland managed to get to ceasefire first and managed to get an agreement first, it, they tend to reverse it. But actually, you know, I think in the Basque country, they've been much better at dealing with the past. You know, they have actively sought ways to, to reconcile at a community level, you know, and they have tried to think about mechanisms that will allow people to do that at the most basic level within communities. And that's something which you do see in Northern Ireland and you see in some excellent initiatives within the island of Ireland, like the, the Glen Cree community in particular, but it's incredibly difficult. And for us, I mean, and Ian, you will know this, in Northern Ireland at the moment, the issue of legacy has is, is utterly toxic. You know, mm. so so last week we had the absolute outrage over the decision around an inquiry into the murder of Pat Finucan, Slister Pat yes, Finucan, and you know, and that's just not going away. You know, that'll never go away. What really struck me about that? I mean, I grew up as a child hearing about Pat Finucan, um, but if you're if you're on social media and you're active in social media, what was really striking was that the people who were driving the campaign on social media were his grandchildren. Children, hmm. you know, which wow. is it's just extraordinary, is you know, and dreadful. Yeah, yeah mm. that is that is quite shocking. And do you think? What I mean, you mentioned social media a few times, and obviously we all we all use social media as academics. Um, but it's it's interesting thinking about it from the perspective of conflict resolution. Does, does social media help or is it actually a hindrance in getting people to talk together? Because quite often when I look at social media, you know, it, it, tensions are raised and, and people are very quick to um, react to things, um, not necessarily think what they're tweeting. You also have a lot of trolling and things. Have you, have you looked at the impact of social media in these conflict zones? I think I, I, I haven't looked at it specifically. Um, I haven't looked at it specifically, but I have some colleagues who have, and I think we're, we now have software which will allow you to trace kind of Twitter activity as it emerges and changes. And I, I mean, it's been—it's really interesting because I, you know, there it is an echo chamber in a sense, and undoubtedly, you know, it it creates um, almost. Um, almost storms of activity around particular incidents which then disperse and, and kind of die away and I, I, but at the same time it connects people who sometimes wouldn't be connected otherwise so you know you see within victims communities a great deal of social media activity and it being used sometimes very effectively to lobby on behalf of victims which is really important so you're giving people who otherwise would have very little voice a very active voice um, now, it subjects those people sometimes to quite horrific trolling, which, again, creates real issues too. So I, I'm, I'm always kind of split on social media. You know, I, yeah. I, I, it helps, you know, in some ways. Yeah, yeah, I was just thinking it's, it's not really something that I... Um, in, you know, really have, have thought much about in terms of how we teach public administration, the role of social media in that, and maybe, maybe, maybe that's becoming increasingly important, I don't know. 
I did um, a small research project, which I never um, have eventually published, but looking at local politicians' use of social media on Merseyside. Um, and it just took uh, a particular month and then captured all of the tweets and then went through a, a coding. It was a content analysis, essentially looking at kind of repeated patterns and classifying them and then trying to do some discourse um, analysis after that. But what was interesting when we did that, it should be the a fellow academic, was... Um, and, and this is a few, this is what, oh, 2015, I think it would have been. Um, politicians were not using it as, as we suspected they might do as a virtual sort of constituency forum. Um, and actually any time that anything strayed into um, constituency type role matters for them, the MPs would, would divert it and say, you know, DM me or can you contact this person and we'll take it offline and stuff. And so... It, it was quite an interesting use of that and what and what we sort of saw as well was this real blurring of kind of personal professional interests so you know one good example would be um lots of the liverpool mps um tweet about football um, as you would expect so some of that is you know the game on saturday was fantastic or terrible but some of it was about justice for the 96 and hillsborough so these mm. kind of merging mm -hmm. um it, it's yeah. a really unusual forum in allowing those two things and it's this very democratizing force that allows anyone to speak to you know a famous person but it also allows idiots to do that i mean it is yeah. really is very yeah. much two-edged isn't it yeah, I think I think it is, and I think for those of us who use it for all sorts of purposes, for work purposes, and then for posting pictures of our cats, us, you know, it's it, mainly you know, cat it, pictures and stuff. A, that's it's what, such a double-edged uh, sword. You know, sometimes I think, oh goodness, enough already. You know, it's it can be so negative, but then you see sometimes quite life-affirming things on it, and you see, you know, recently kind of Marcus Rashford and his campaign, which has been managed through social media very heavily, but, you know, really important. So Ian, just picking up um, that question, I suppose, pushing that back to you, mm -hmm. just see what, what, what you think about social media. We, we're all on Twitter. Um, we should probably, at the beginning of this, said what our Twitter handles are <laughs> and things. I, I've, every conference I go to, I always kind of say, look, you know, my, here's my top pro tip. Put your Twitter mm -hmm. handle on the very first slide of your presentation whilst yeah, you're introducing yeah. yourself, and then people know to, to look you up. But what do you think about it in terms of it, its influence in um, both academia and also public admin? Yeah, I mean, I, I think um, you are very good at using it, Russ, undoubtedly. Um, I feel as though now is the time to mention the, the, the stone uh, staircase thing. But the, the I, anyway, anyway, I'll, I'll come back to that another time. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, I, I don't know. I mean, I kind of feel on, on one hand that, like Joanne was saying, it can help to bring communities together and, and build up critical mass of people to um, respond to consultations or something like that. But then at the same time, I feel as though it can distort um, the kind of traditional democratic processes um, and potentially give give uh, a voice to um, to, to you know particular groups who are particularly active and, and particularly good at, at um, organizing themselves so I think it links into um, I'm thinking back to a lot of 
Peter Matthews' work around um, yeah. um, how, how affluent communities will organise themselves and and lobby for you know certain services or certain benefits in a way uh, um, that potentially more marginalised uh, communities don't in a way. So it, I, I think it can have a distorting effect, um, but it's it's definitely something I haven't. I feel as though I need to give more thought to because although I use um, social media f from a, a kind of personal and, and professional perspective, I, I've never really thought about that link with um, between communities and policymakers before. When I was doing some of my research with local government, it just it, as a kind of side question, um, I, and I was looking at kind of central policy type functions, um, I asked them where their social media people were who ran the, the council's Twitter account. And there was quite an interesting split as to whether their, their social media people were in a communications team, a corporate comms role, or whether they were in customer services. And, <laughs> and it was probably 50-50. And so some of them were definitely using it as a, you know, a service delivery channel, if we want to kind of put that way. Um, have you sort of experienced anything uh, around that side, Joanne? really fascinating actually you know that split between uh, public uh, affairs and customer services um, yeah I mean you know whenever I look at my Twitter feed it's so eclectic you know you get so many different perspectives for so many different people I think what I find really interesting is that there are a lot of quite senior public administrators and I can only really speak about Northern Ireland who are on Twitter for example but who are there in an alias so I kind of, and eventually they sort of stick their head above the parapet. Oh boy, and I was I was with a, a, a group of senior police officers recently, and they they said, oh well, you know, uh, not many of us use Twitter, and I just laughed because I, I was connected to uh, quite a few of them, and actually quite a few of their superior officers, but who all operate in a in a sort of, you know, if you really knew the person. You know, and you looked at the Twitter feed, you'd probably work it out, you know, in terms of outside interests yeah. or some of the things they tweet. But it, they're there, but they're not there. Ask about you know, that, or John. they have more than yeah, one account. I was going to ask about that because mm -hmm. um, certainly within uh, Britain, I, I find that you know, some of the best social media accounts are actually from police services. Um, and they have they have you know formal <laughs> yeah. official um, Twitter accounts they're, that they're very active on. They have um, very very active uh, Facebook pages and things. And the 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 police officers who I teach all use social media um, personally, but there's all they also have official accounts that are a really useful link for them in, in engaging with the public. But again, in Northern Ireland, yeah. that must have a very different context and 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 very different challenges Hugely. very cautious yeah, yeah absolutely yeah absolutely they and and you know you can you can absolutely understand why they're cautious and why they are concerned about protecting their privacy and also their safety because obviously there is a a very active threat in northern ireland in relation to the police um, and very significant still dissident activity in relation to the police and the prison service and we shouldn't forget you know the prison service is also subjected uh, to that as well so it, it's 
I, I mean, I always have a huge amount of respect for police officers who put their head above the parapet. Mm. And it's interesting because, I mean, you know, Ian, you, you'll, you may well remember this, but the first police officer in Northern Ireland really to go public as such was uh, Ronnie Flanagan when he was deputy chief constable yes. and he was the first police officer really to engage with the media in it and he was a mm. big media performer but but that i think in a, you know he is i suppose the model for a lot of it particularly in northern ireland just because he was able to do it so well and i have a huge amount of respect for any of them that do do it because it can't <laughs> be easy Aaron, you um, teach quite a lot of public servants or certainly have done mm -hmm. it what um, mm -hmm. what's it been like for you in terms of their sort of professional and personal use of social media has that come up as an issue yeah it has not so much recently but certainly in the past I th I, quite a number of uh, um, practitioners have wanted to look into the use of social media for dissertations or bring it into their assignments and certainly I think some of the points that um, both Ian and Joanne were making about how people are using it for different reasons and there is a I suppose a, um, a sort of path dependency at first to kind of use it as an inf a provision of information. And then I think as organisations and people working with social media get more confident, it, it starts to be used to communicate and um, gather opinions. And I'm sure there's lots of papers on it somewhere. It's not an area that I research, but, uh, you know, we can see trajectories and kind of different ways of using it and I think very much often it's also about training and confidence and within the public sector now a lot of the training in terms of skills obviously has had to be cut with um, financial cutbacks and you know possibly it's an area that's not developed as much as it could have done and I think a point that was brought up earlier is that you know about the different the ways ways of connections but at the same time there's a huge proportion of our communities that aren't um, using social media and there's always the question the, about the extent to which they're left out of consultations because certain bodies have moved on to focusing on Twitter and Facebook as a primary means of communication. And, of course, that um, disenfranchises a lot of the public. Yeah, that, that so-called, so-called, the digital divide. Um, yeah, indeed, yeah. yeah. And certainly with austerity, we know that lots of public services have been trying to, um, I think the phrase I often heard used was uh, migrate people onto less resource intensive channels. I, I, Indeed, <laughs> very well put, yeah. yeah. Stop them talking to human beings and get them to deal with a computer instead. Um, and there's some real benefits for that. And I think um, one of our future episodes, we're going to have um, a talk about kind of co-creation and that mm. whole side mm. of people doing that. It's really, really fascinating. I, but I think there is a recognition in a lot of areas is the public service that uh, it's not the panacea for everything as well and organizations are starting to reflect on you know where it's useful and perhaps where you know how it can be one of a number of tools that can be used to communicate with the public mm, yeah um i was just going i was just thinking of something else sorry just a, a slightly different um slant here but something that popped into my mind um was joanne just thinking about um the role of of queen's university in northern ireland and um i, I must admit i have worked a lot with with uh academics in northern ireland but primarily from ulster university um well, hopefully that doesn't put mm -hmm. me in your bad books we won't um, hold that against and um they yeah. they have quite a long history of that uh of of working in public administration but queen's seem to be developing a real critical mass now of public admin scholars um within the political 
um, side as, as well as within the business yeah, side. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Um, how, how has that come about? What's been the impetus for that? Well, I mean, I, th- I think it's it's probably come about just through the you know sheer hard work and kind of dogged determination of people like Murius McCarthy, you know, and and others who have been really mm. active in that area. I know that we have a centre for uh, not for profit and public management in the management school that's been going for a while. It has tended to have a bit of a focus on accounting, kind of public finance for for, for okay. a long time, but I think that it's maybe um, kind of reframing slightly. Um, we obviously, I, I have yeah. to just put and a bit of a plug in. And you've just started a centre, haven't you? We, we have. Yeah. We've just started a new centre within the school, uh, the Centre for Leadership, Ethics and Organisation, CLEO. Uh, I'm very, we're very lucky to have Ross as part of that. Um, and, and hopefully we might be able to recruit uh, uh, Ian and, and Karen as well after this evening. Um, but uh, really within that centre, you know, what we're trying to do is to pull together a really broad range of people who... It's certainly a very opportune moment for thinking about change in Northern Ireland. Must I mention the B word at this point? How do you think that's going to affect the whole uh, devolution settlement? So, I mean, I suppose one of the questions in maybe you're asking is... Um, what happens now that we have essentially turned one of the devolved nations into uh, a customs and borders agency? Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, it's it, it's it's raising a lot. I mean, obviously, Ireland um, has has been at the centre of the Brexit debate really since since the start. I think the the thing that I was going to um, raise sort of on the back of that, Ian, and be interested to hear Ian, uh, Karen and Joanne to hear your views, was was almost around Brexit for me. It feels very much like it's a mindset um, problem in that the the current government sees this as a negotiation that has to be won um, and for someone to win someone else has to lose and there's a victor and we see this I think and I, I've heard Joanne you talk about this the the very militaristic and war metaphors that are constantly you know being um, pumped out about well f- fact about anything the government does but actually a compromise is not the best situation it's a situation that everyone agrees they can live with you know um, the accountants might call it the the least worst option, um, and you know it's it's seems to be fundamentally a kind of problem of around mindset. I wonder what uh, what any of you think about that. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Actually, thinking back on the actual political system of the UK and where this comes from, so we're one of the one of not so many countries that have quite an adversarial political system that kind of focuses on majorities and focuses on the winner takes all even if that winner hasn't got a majority of votes and uh, and so the kind of the mindset is that if you don't win then you wait till the next time or you just accept that you've not won whereas if we look to um, our European countries then there's much more of a kind of collaborative consociational kind of approach to politics and there's a recognition that um, I'll give up this if I can have that and that's something that's never really entered into the Brexit debate over here it's always been a polarised this or that approach and suddenly to start to in- start to try and introduce those things it's it- it doesn't seem like it's going to work on either side. 
So I suppose just a, a point I would make in terms of Northern Ireland and the EU and the significance of the EU is that is that what um, a, a series of agreements over time, including the Anglo-Irish Agreement in 1985 and things like the Downing Street Declaration in the 90s and then the, the, the Good Friday Agreement in 1998 did was to really reframe the relationship between the, uh, the islands, I suppose, that we live in. And so what it what it did was it enshrined for the first time within um, international treaties the three sets of relationships so the relationships between the two sovereign states of, of Britain and Ireland the relationship between the north of Ireland and the south of Ireland and the relationships of the people within inside Northern Ireland themselves and the reason why that's very important to understand Absolutely. is that that was all done within the context of the European Union that made um, so, so you know that yeah. was incredibly yeah, yeah. important because without that, now the now the difficulty about that was that that framework was developed in the late 1960s by John Hume, who went on to be the leader of the mm. SDLP in Northern Ireland, and so Hume's framework was gradually developed over a period of time, um, and through relationships in Europe and through relationships in the US, and so all the structures we talk about the EU, the relationship with Dublin, the relationship with London, the relationship with Washington were developed by him um, and other members of his party but principally by him and then by the, his relationship with the Irish government and principally actually a, an administration in the Irish government called the Anglo-Irish uh, the Anglo-Irish division and and for me I suppose that's where the hope sits in this because one of the things that we see when we look at Brexit is just how skillfully the Irish government have managed their position um, and I think that has been because the Anglo-Irish division have taken negotiators who were immensely skilled, who were negotiating for decades and moved them essentially from the peace talks to Brexit. And, and what they did was they closed ranks within the European Union as well. And that has made the Irish position incredibly strong. The other thing which we should really note, and it's, it's easy to get lost in Brexit because it seems to just move bizarrely in different directions on a daily basis, but that the Northern Ireland Protocol is now in place. So whatever happens in terms of Britain, the Northern Ireland's relationship with the um, with uh, with Europe is pretty much settled at the minute and that is something for people in Northern Ireland to be very pleased about. So Northern Ireland will now have a different relationship with the European Union than the rest of Britain. So it's, it's a very complex, fast-moving environment. I, don't, I, I think it's probably important just to kind of set that out because it's not a straightforward relationship and I think if we don't look at the, the position that uh, that Dublin has developed, we won't fully understand just the level of soft power which exists within Dublin. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree, Joanne. Um, Hume died uh, this year after being very unwell for yeah. a very long time and I was very privileged to be one of the people asked to write an obituary for him, a little piece for the Irish Times. And I'm very fortunate as well at the minute to be doing a piece of research on the Department of Foreign Affairs in Dublin and the Anglo-Irish Division. And one of the people I interviewed, who actually wasn't a Hume fan, I have to say, he was very critical of him. He um, he he said about him, you know, there were many people, you know, without without um, 
who, who were very significant and important to the development of peace in Northern Ireland, but only one without whom it would not have been possible. And Hume was very clever in that he really didn't, you know, try to be the big man, if you want to put it in Irish terms. You know, he was very clever in terms of how he managed his relationships with governments, with Washington, with America, uh, with Europe. Um, and with you know his colleagues in Northern Ireland as well, and and I think you know we talk a lot about leadership, we talk a lot about political leadership, but we very rarely talk about the long game. And I think when you look at you look at that level of strategy, that was a strategy which was a fifty-year strategy, and that's something you very rarely see. Um, and yet that's really, I suppose, when you're talking about resolving these wicked problems, these grand challenges that we have, that's the kind of strategizing you need. And yet it's so incredibly rare. That's one of the things I, I like most, I think, about Clio and why I was so pleased to to be involved uh, with you in it is it for me, it's essentially you looking at a problem and saying, yeah, sure, but that's just not big enough as a problem. What What's the bigger thing that we need <laughs> to deal with? Yeah. Well, I, 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 I'll tell you something. I'll tell you a little anecdote about that because that's really important. Um, you know, Ian will know that at one point in Northern Ireland, we had a potential settlement in Sunningdale in the early 1970s. And the Sunningdale executive yes, collapsed. Yes, absolutely. Um, essentially hmm. because the unionists refused to work with the nationalists during it. Much more complex than that, obviously. But if we need to sum it up very quickly, then that's probably the best way to sum it up and I have an interview with um, um, someone very close to John Hume at that point and he came home and this person said to him well what are you going to do now and he said well in order to solve this problem we're going to need to make it bigger and that's when he went to America <laughs> and, and that's fascinating because it brought in an entirely new dimension yeah. And, and I think what the sort of half-baked thesis I was trying to advance was to say I think the, the government's Brexit strategy has been the exact opposite of that. It's been a very Absolutely. reductive strategy. It, it's let's boil it down to, you know, you've got to be prepared to walk away from the table. Well, th that's what I did when I bought my house. But this is a little bit more complex than buying a house uh, exactly and and yet you know we we talk very often about the totality of relationships and the importance of understanding uh, you know how the world is interconnected and the British government strategy seems to be entirely at odds with that and that is I think what just puzzles and frustrates so many of us because none of us can afford to be so um, disconnected from what is going on around us and I think about the frustration of people in Northern Ireland who after you know working at every level in so many different ways for such a long time to achieve um, uh, a, 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 a position where they could move on from conflict and to be dragged back to uh, you know to, to a hard border is just absolutely shocking I, I know for many of us in Northern Ireland it was absolutely unspeakable at the time and Brexit had a much bigger resonance than simply leaving the European Union it was a real step backwards and you know the 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 one thing that I really I'm really pleased about in terms of Clio is that we are able to maybe begin to think about some of these challenges in a much more inclusive way and begin to think about some of the enormous um, difficulties that we have, you know, as, you know, as interconnected islands, as islands of Europe, as, you know, people who are citizens of the world. 
uh, facing you know what are what are really catastrophic difficulties and hopefully begin to make a tiny 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 contribution to some new thinking around beginning to deal with those thanks and that that for me again you know really beautiful way of kind of bringing it back to um the essence it seems to me of, of of much of your research which is about looking at as you as we said these liminal spaces where things come together where they rub together where friction and tension and conflict occurs and trying to understand the a kind of broader more systemic um perspective on these problems but at the same time, in the balancing of that is that it is it is individuals that join um, boards and partnerships and organisations and and that negotiate. And actually, you know, we see with Biden suddenly the real emphasis of his commitment to um, the peace process being you know fundamentally different kind of to Trump. So it, it is a really kind of you know for me very nice way of looking over that that interface between you know it's not just seeing it as um, service delivery and people who get a service it's a much more rich complex tapestry than that it seems yeah and i think we have to have you know we have to start playing the long game you know we have to start looking at the horizon a bit more and thinking about where we're going in you know within within universities within our scholarship within public administration more generally you know we because the challenges that we face are enormous and i think one of the one of the things that i find very interesting about the the biden potential you know the 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 idea of moving towards a biden presidency you know i used to find it very frustrating when you had all these old people you know in in political office i used to think it was really it was really annoying that what you needed was lots of new fresh thinking people and and move on to a new generation but there is something I have to say at the minute just given the level of challenges that we're facing you know about having someone you know who really has seen a huge amount in their life and who has clearly um you know experienced those things and experienced a great deal of pain themselves and who really understands that you know and that is quite comforting Aaron did you um want to kind of bring that back to your teaching of uh, public servants yes thank you in fact I started without 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 unmuting myself but yeah yeah absolutely it made me think quite a lot about what our roles as um, academics and also as educators really are when we're thinking about issues like this and it is really I think about introducing those nuances and encouraging our students to take time to reflect on them and you know one of the things that comes across kind of across the board which I'm sure everybody would agree with in talking to um, practitioners whether elected or not elected they don't really have enough time to reflect on what what works and what doesn't work and why it does work and really what the complexities of issues are because of the fast and fast and pressured paces in which they have to work and one of the things that I think is really important for us to do is to introduce kind of those nuances and differences and give students practitioners a space for them to think about it and actually kind of engage in reflexive thinking and realize that actually dynamism is fine change is fine and actually we're all learning as we go a lot of the time Definitely. and that's fine within the public services to change positions take on new perspectives 
So I, I think if um, I think we sort of have come to a nice point there to uh, to start to wrap things up. Um, I pretty much have finished my gin, although my cat, who's alongside me, has been attempting to stick his paw in it. Um, I don't normally feed the cat gin, so I don't really know what he's doing. But uh, he's my constant um, academic companion animal, um, more of which I think we need. Um, mm, yes. Just, just to say, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on, um, Joanne. And um, frankly, I have learned an awful lot uh, more in terms of a, you know sophistication about um, the nature of Northern Ireland. You know, it's 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 always been clear, I think, that um, Westminster is very limited in the way that it approaches the devolved nations and that that you know Northern Ireland is a case in and of itself and as as you've all said I think has a very complex and kind of multifaceted mm. nature mm. that that actually is very difficult for you know mere Brits like uh, like me to really get my head around <laughs> um, but it has been fantastic it's been lovely really to have you here well, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. It's been it's been lovely to speak to all of you and to meet you, Karen and Ian, as well. And hopefully, we can do this again sometime on at the behest of Cleo. Absolutely. Indeed. Yeah, thank you very much. This. Thanks, be really thanks good. Joanne. That's been really nice to meet you. You've been listening to Public Service Podcasting with Russ Glennon, Ian Elliott, and Karen Bottom. <laughs>